Thank you everyone for joining the IJGC Mentors Podcast, where our editorial fellows delve deep into the careers of our mentors to learn what it takes to be in the field of gynecologic oncology. Today we have the honor of being joined by the IDIN genius that is Dr. Dennis Chi. Dr. Chi is a gynecologic oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's a Ronald O. Perlman Chair in Gynecological Surgery, Deputy Chief of Gynecological Service and Head of Ovarian Cancer Surgery, Department of Surgery. More than 20 years of experience in caring for women with cancerous and non-cancerous gynecological disease, including cervical, uterine, and ovarian cancer. He has participated in numerous clinical trials and authored several books, book chapters, and journal articles in ovarian cancer. With editorial fellows, Vansa from Georgia, Ryan from the US, Teresa from Austria, Julia and Andrea from Italy, Nuria from Spain, Jennifer from the UK, Arthur from Taiwan, and I am Anissa Mburu from Kenya. Welcome, Dr. Chi. I will set us off with the first question. Um, Dr. Chi, you are housed internationally. What are some of the challenges you faced while building your practice and niche in the field of research? Well, first of all, thank you very much to the International Fellows Group for inviting me to uh, participate in this podcast. It's quite an honor for me to do this because I feel that I'm kind of like old and over the hill and to be able to share my thoughts and pontificate freely to such a young uh, group of G1 oncologists who are going to be the future leaders of the field is, is really quite an honor to me. And I, I was real, there was no hesitation in uh, accepting this invitation. So to get right into it, the challenges that I faced uh, when building my practice and niche in the field, I don't think it's a, 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 a secret that my passion for taking care of women with gynecologic cancers is surgical. And that's for many reasons. One, I, I kind of like doing surgery. But uh, more importantly, I'm not allowed at my institution to give chemotherapy or radiation therapy, and I kind of don't even want to give hormonal therapy. So I had to focus my clinical practice and my research on the surgical aspects of the field. So with that in mind, if you think about it, whether you're a pathologist, a radiologist, a medical oncologist, you don't want to say something like, well... I think a hysterectomy is the best treatment for endometrial cancer. That's not going to get a publication, right? So the first step in trying to build a niche and publish papers is to do something that's, at least at the time it's being done, is something that pushes the envelope, so to speak, to use an American expression. And the problem with that is doctors in general are usually very conservative and they don't really want you to do wild things, especially surgically. And so one of my this is answers one of the later questions is one of my early mentors. I don't know if he's the one who developed this statement, but I use it a lot. The only person who likes change is a wet baby. Think about that. Nobody else likes change. Everybody likes to do things the way they do. I drink my coffee at the same time every morning. I go to the bathroom every same time every morning. Then I do whatever I got to do. So people don't like change. But by definition, if you want to publish papers, you're not going to publish papers on well, hysterectomy is a good thing for endometrial cancer, are you? You're going to have to try to push the envelope a little bit. And that was the number one problem. It's one thing if you're doing a randomized trial of drug A versus drug B, you get all the phase one, phase two uh, studies and back it up. If you're going to sit there and say, hey, I'm going to take out a spleen for ovarian cancer. What do you think of me now? 
you're going to meet a lot of resistance because think people are going to think it's like surgeons gone wild. So that was for what I do uh, to answer the question. That was some of the challenges. And that was to try to push the envelope surgically for ovarian and also for recurrent cancers, advanced stage disease, that is, and try to incorporate what I knew made sense was safe. So why is it that if a liver surgeon takes out a piece of liver for primary liver cancer or colon cancer, that's okay. But if a gynecologic oncologist calls a liver surgeon to take out a piece of the liver or takes out a piece of liver by themselves, that's like ultra radical, too dangerous. Why is that? Um, my advice to you all is just to use common sense. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with that. And as long as it can be done safely, that's the key thing. And that's another piece of advice Bill Hoskins gave me. Well, two pieces of advice is Dennis, he said, Dennis, you want to do this? That's fine. But number one, be safe. And number two, make sure you keep track of your outcomes. And so that's pretty much been the, the way my career has gone. I saw how we could do something safely, whether it's stripping a diaphragm or taking out the distal pancreas or whatever. I safely incorporated that into our surgical armamentarium by calling in people who do th did this all the time, documented what we did, how we did it. Number one, what was the complication rates? And then kind of just went from there. I wasn't the only one doing it. I'm not trying to take credit for all that, but that was the pattern of, of what I had to do. And, and um, it, it wasn't easy because when we did have complications, for those people who are in the department of OBGYN, um, if you get a pancreatic leak, the first thing your chairman, of, who's a maternal fetal medicine doctor, is going to say is, what in the world were you operating on the pancreas for? You're a gynecologist. You're supposed to do hysterectomies. So when you try to push the envelope and things go well, you're a hero and you get to be invited to an international podcast. But when things go poorly, then you're, you're, sometimes your job is in trouble. So I would say what I faced is what you all will face. As you're trying to push the envelope, build your career, make a difference, do innovative things, be careful, build an allegiance of people to help support you when things don't go well. And uh, don't, be a, don't be a hero. Don't be somebody who just does things cavalierly or else you're going to find yourself in deep water or hot water. Dr. Chi, that's very insightful. Next, we'll have Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chi. Um, uh, I'm Arthur Chi from Taiwan. I just want to express that I think that your work is so uh, relevant and important because uh, we now have a lot of new drugs and it's uh, it's starting to cure people, but a lot a lot of the times the medication is too expensive. A lot of times the drug uh, people don't have access to that. So without surgery, we really uh, surgery is such a cornerstone. So uh, I want to extend uh, to 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 extend something about your your last answer. So uh, you said that you have such a passion in surgery, and I want to say uh, when more and more people uh, in, in the joint oncology are starting to do uh, ovarian cancer surgeries, the new adjuvant. Well, why do you persist in developing the ovarian cancer sur upfront surgery? Uh, what is your motivation? Thank you so much. So let me just say that I, I think the thing that I, I are my strengths are that number one, I can read critically. And number two, I have common sense. And I'm not afraid to admit when I made a mistake. And so 
when it comes to um, the role of surgery, especially for ovarian cancer, I was trained to do a lot of what other centers train their trainees to do for ovarian cancer. A THBSO omentectomy, maybe a bowel resection, but we really weren't trained to do uh, cancer operations in the upper abdomen. And I think that it just makes common sense that if someone's going to operate on ovarian cancer, that's stage three or four disease, if you're going to operate, by definition, stage three or four disease is going to most frequently or very frequently involve structures in the upper abdomen. So if you're operating and you know you're going to have disease in the upper abdomen and the goal of surgery is whatever your definition of optimal or complete gross resection is, shouldn't you be prepared and trained to take care of that disease? Otherwise, you know ahead of time, if you see a CAT scan that says, oh, there's tumor on the diaphragm, I'm going to do a laparotomy, THBSO, omentectomy, but it's not, you're not supposed to take that disease off of the diaphragm. That, that makes no sense to me. Then don't, then don't operate or get somebody to help you operate. Or fine, you want to give neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So that, that's the common sense approach. The other approach is that when you look at the, this is a whole, if you see that, well, you, don't, you can't see it on the podcast, but I've done back in the days from 2000 and what year is that? 2008 to, to now, the whole primary debulking versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, debate. I was the surgeon who does THBSO omentectomy and maybe a bowel resection in 1997, 1998, 1999, and early 2000. And then I realized, you know what? Taking tumor from the diaphragm isn't that hard. But when you see the surgical arms in both the primary and interval debulking arms of the neoadjuvant studies, you realize that the surgery isn't what, isn't maximal surgery. It's what is thought to be the standard or not so aggressive surgery for ovarian cancer. So it make, those studies are highly appropriate. They're, they're level one studies that said, if you bring to the surgical table your standard approaches, then maybe you should give that patient neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I, I actually agree with that. But that's not what we should strive to do. We should strive to give the best possible care to our patients. And that, if that means calling a general surgeon in to take tumor from the diaphragm or the surface of the liver or the spleen to get all the cancer out, then do it, whether it's a primary or interval side reduction. That's the common sense. I don't, I don't think that we have to fly in as Superman with a cape and do some magnificent whatever, have a, te- a team assembled that can get the job done, whatever it is. And I do acknowledge that there will be a day when neoadjuvant chemotherapy, robotic hysterectomy, omentectomy, followed by more chemo, and then some, some maintenance therapy, a la the way PARP inhibitors are so effective for BRCA-positive patients. I, I, I get it, and those results are really, really good, but two things. One, the patients who have a complete side reduction of primary debulking who get chemotherapy and PARP inhibitors do the best. Number two, that doesn't apply to everybody. There's a lot of patients out there that don't have a BRCA mutation. So in the meantime, until we have a magic pill that's going to eradicate widely metastatic ovarian cancer, or everybody's going to get salpingectomies and no one's going to get ovarian cancer, if we're taking care of these patients, we need to have the, the, the skill set, the toolbox to take care of whatever it is we're, we're doing when we operate, or let somebody else do the operation. Thank you so much, Dr. Chi, for sharing your mindset and also letting every uh, young UI oncologist know that even Dr. Chi started with ATH and BSO. 
<laughs> so uh, next, we have uh, Nuria Augusti from Spain. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. T, for sharing with us your exciting thoughts. My question is, the best evidence we have is the results coming from a randomized clinical trials. However, surgical clinical trials are really difficult to conduct in a prospective randomized setting. So what do you think is the key to succeed when performing a surgical clinical trial? Thank you. Yes, I, I really like this question. I really like <laughs> this question because I think that it co that comes to the crux of the primary bulking versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy trials, and maybe even to the crux of the, the whole LAC trial, the whole cervical cancer, minimally invasive versus open trial. And that is that when you're doing a chemotherapy trial, when you're giving, when you're doing a radiation trial, I think it all goes without saying, again, common sense, that I think, you know, give me, give me the recipe, I guess I don't want to say recipe, but give me, give me how I'm supposed to give drug A, and I'm going to give drug A. You should see when we do HIPEC, the little checklist of what we need to do is tremendous. Um, when you're doing chemotherapy trials, we kind of assume, maybe I'm wrong, but we kind of assume that arm A is going to get the drug at the appropriate dose, in the appropriate way, in the appropriate timing. And same thing with radiation. And we don't think that, well, the chemotherapy drug the, the Avastin at Memorial Sloan Kettering is any different than it is at MD Anderson or in Milan or in Rome. It's the drug is the drug is the drug. Radiation, more or less, although there have been some questions in vulvar cancer and radiation, radiation is pretty much the same everywhere. But the problem with surgical trials is, and, and I'm the first to say this, I'm a better surgeon now than I was 20 years ago. I'm, I'm a better surgeon at 8 a.m., then I am at 8 p.m. And if I had was doing my surgery at a community hospital, I wouldn't be able to do as much as I could at a Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center type hospital. So with surgical trials, it really is important to have as best as you can quality control over the surgery arm. So for example, I have slides on this. If you were to compare the, the, um, the first ERTC trial by Vergote, of neoadjuvant versus primary to bulking, where the goal of surgery is to get all the cancer out, complete gross resection, or even an optimal side reduction. If I, if I had a trial where I can compare treatment A to treatment B, you expect 90 to 100% of patients to get treatment A and 90 to 100% of patients to get treatment B. But the role of surgery for ovarian cancer is not, this is very important, the role of surgery for ovarian cancer is not to expose the cancer to air and let carbon dioxide and, and nitrogen and oxygen kill the cancer. That's not going to work. So if in these not primary debulking versus neoadjuvant trials, if only 20% of the patients are getting a complete side reduction, then only 20% of the patients in a comp, in a, if you're an analogy to chemotherapy drugs, only 20% of patients got drug A, right? The, it's, the exposing it to air was of no therapeutic value. So what do you expect the results to be? If I, if I did a trial of drugs A versus B and only 20% of patients got drug A and more or less everybody got the same other treatments, there'd be no difference. And what do those trials show? There's no difference because oh, guess what? In, in the primary debulking arms, when they expose the patients to air or the cancer to air, it didn't work. So that's why you have to have quality control. And that's why I congratulate 
Andreas Dubois and the AGO who designed the trust study. We wanted to do one in the United States, but frankly, the reason why we were had our own funding to do a, a trust study, a US trust study, I actually shared my protocol with the AGO people, Sven Maher and, and that group. And we went through the GOG. They weren't really excited about it. We wanted to do our own trial, but I actually, in my own heart of hearts, didn't think we could have the surgical quality control that they did in the trust study. The trust study people actually came to Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I think we do pretty good surgery. And under, they, they graded the centers. And on a scale of A to F, we didn't get an A. We got a B because our documentation wasn't that good. But nevertheless, that just goes to show the, the, the level of quality control in the trust study. You had to do, uh, I don't know, 50 debulkings a year. You had to have a complete gross dissection rate of 50% or, or more. So if you're going to do surgical studies, to summarize, you need to have surgical quality control. And as much as this may be painful politically, if a center or surgeon doesn't have the requisite ability to get the, the surgical outcome you want, it's like a chemotherapy center that doesn't have all the drugs, then they shouldn't participate in the trial. Um, and that's how you're going to, in my opinion, um, have better surgical randomized controls trials is to make sure that the centers and people participating have a, a prerequisite uh, level that they need to attain. Thank you so much, Dr. Chi. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now we'll go to the UK where we have Jennifer Davis-Oliveira. Go ahead, Jen. Hi, thank you so much. You've already mentioned a mentor that had a great impact on you and some fantastic advice from that mentor. I was wondering if you had any other mentors of note and um, why they had a big, why have they had a big impact on you? Yeah, I mean, I got to start um, with my mom. My mom was a general OBGYN. Uh, my mom uh, immigrated. This is not unique to the people on this call. Immigrated to the United States in the 1950s. Uh, she was a small Korean woman who didn't speak English very well and uh, was trained abroad and was able to become a successful OBGYN, uh, raise a family, put me through medical school, and um, teach he, she, the things that she taught me are you know, the importance of a hard work ethic. I remember her waking up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. to go deliver a baby. Crazily enough, I, I was so um, appreciative to what my mom did and um, impressed by it. I wanted to go into OBGYN and take over her practice. But after a few months of being an intern in OBGYN, I realized I didn't want to deliver babies. I didn't want to wake up in the middle of the night to deliver babies. And I pivoted to doing G1 oncology. But um, she did teach me a lot about patient care and how it's very, very important. You know, when you're delivering a baby, you got to just take care of that patient. And uh, she taught me the importance of, you know, the, the patient right there is the most important thing in the world for you right then and there. Individualized care is very, very important. You can have these sweeping randomized controlled trials, but, uh, but at, at you know, to use the expression at the end of the day, when that patient and that family member are sitting there, you can't use generalized, randomized controlled trials. You have to individualize that care for that individual patient and take care of that patient like she's your mother. And I don't say that to be corny. I say that to be true because that's what all of you would want from your doctors too. Very impressive, Dr. Chi, especially now that so many of us have run away from delivering babies, but there's still a lot that can be learned. So can we go on to Andrea Rosati from Italy? Thank you, Professor Chi. Uh, my question is from the perspective of an highly experienced gynecologic oncologist, 
how do you imagine the future of surgery in our discipline? What role will it play with the advent of increasingly effective target and combination therapies? Will its use be progressively reduced or simply reshaped and integrated with these new therapeutic options? Yeah, that, that's great. a great follow-up question. I think I've been hinting on this, and as you can tell, I'm very, very passionate about, about what I do. And I, I just, using common sense, there's an American expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So once the baby is cleaned, take the baby out and then throw out the bathwater and don't just throw everything out. And so I think the comprehensive surgery and effective medical therapy are not mutually exclusive. They should be complementary. I'm all for having a drug or pill that's going to eradicate cancer. That's great. That's wonderful. But in the meantime, when your mother is sitting there right in front of me with advanced ovarian cancer, and she's probably Brocken negative, should I just kind of say, well, you know what? In five to 10 years, we're going to have some great immunotherapy for you. So just kind of sit tight. I'll give you some oral methotrexate and maybe some PARP inhibition and hope you don't get, you know, a leukemia. And uh, we'll just wait for five years until we get these new drugs. The bottom line is right now, I, I believe in research. I participate in research. But right now, it's our job to go through all the stuff in the literature and say, okay, Mrs. Rosati, this is the best treatment for you right now with what we have. There may be a pill for you in three to four years. It's going to kill everything. But right now, it's not ready for prime time. And so we just have to do what we can do. Does everybody need an ultra radical debulking? No, if they don't need it, we don't do it. It's, I think that was one of, the, one of the criticisms of Paul Sugarbaker, who was a grandfather in the field of surgical oncology and the peritonectomy procedure. Some people even call it the Sugarbaker peritonectomy. He would go to meetings and people would say, you know, your problem is I believe in what you do, but you take out normal tissue. You just go in there and you take out the spleen and the diaphragm and the this and the that. And his response is, no, I don't. I take out, if the cancer is involving the spleen, I take it out. If the cancer is not involving the spleen, I leave it alone. So that the whole idea that every patient with advanced ovarian cancer is going to get this mega operation is not at all the case. So in a complementary fashion, if one day we can convince ourselves that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is better and has better progression-free and overall survival than primary debulking, let's do it. And at the time of surgery, if all they need is a hysterectomy, omentectomy. Let's do that. I'm happy to operate for two, three hours and not six to eight hours. That's good by me. I got to go play golf. It's fine. I got back pain. I got neck pain. I don't need to operate for eight hours. I want to do what's right for my patients. But if you're operating and you have disease all over the place and the, the goal of the operation is to get it out, then try your best to get it out. Sometimes you can't. But just because you want to leave earlier because you know, somebody said somewhere that, oh, stripping a diaphragm is too aggressive. That's, that's nonsense. So I do believe they're complementary. I do believe, I firmly believe that drug therapy is going to continue to get better and better and better. And surgery hopefully will get less aggressive. But for those people who say that that's going to happen in the next year or so, they're wrong. They said the same thing about Avastin, about Avastin. That was the home run. Or if it's football, that was the, the goal. The soccer goal. There was what is it called in soccer? Do they have a hat trick in soccer? Football? Is, is there? Okay. So that's the hat trick. Avastin is the hat trick. No, it's not. We don't even use it in a front therapy often anymore. So I think the 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 
the the funeral for surgery is premature, as is the idea that there's a pill that's going to cure ovarian cancer beginning in 2024. That's not here yet. And we still got to do what we can to individualize our treatment for the patients that are sitting right in front of us every day. All right. Thank you very much. Over to you, Ryan. Thanks so much, Dr. Chi, for joining us. This is Ryan Kahn from Memorial Stone Kettering, I'm sure as you know. Um, you know, in, in moving forward with, with our careers, especially as uh, young clinicians, young GYN oncologists, what are some ways you've learned to best deal with your setbacks, your failures, failures and moving forward from the past? And, and what are ways that we could learn and implement these as well in our careers? Well, I, I think like golf and like baseball, um, a medical career, especially when you're dealing with patients, um, is you have to be able to overcome your failures and your um, and your disasters. And I think that it you can't you can't just be devastated when things don't go your well go your way, and you really need to learn from your mistakes. Uh, in, in the papers that we've written on extensive surgery for ovarian cancer, we have more papers on how to prevent complications, deal with complications, anticipate complications than we have on progression-free and overall survival. Because we, if we were just to write all these papers and say, look how great we are, we did this, we did that, it wouldn't be very um, credible. And I think that learning from our mistakes, admitting that we made the mistakes and trying to do better that's why we get better. And so it's going to, it's a rocky road for people trying to start out on this field uh, when you're a surgeon and, and you, there are complications with, with chemotherapy too. So I think that, I don't say that we should embrace the complications, but we should accept the fact that stuff is going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. And if we keep on making the same mistakes twice, you know, that's the definition of insanity, right? Keep on doing the same thing and expecting a, a different outcome. I think that we have to kind of learn from our mistakes and do our best to uh, prevent uh, complications and problems with our research, uh, not going the way we want to go. I mean, you just have to, that's part of doing business. It's part of the, of the, the game of, of uh, or the, the specialty of G1 oncology is, you know, the law of maximum entropy. Things are going to happen. Nobody lives to be 200 years old. People are going to die. Uh, Surgery is going to have complications, as is all medical and radiation therapy, and we just have to kind of do our best to minimize that and, and keep on moving forward and stay optimistic. Um, I was in a meeting with a, a bunch of, I think it was a surgical quality assurance meeting, and I was in a meeting with all these different surgeons, and there was an orthopedic surgeon who, who, who does did massive hemipelvectomies and all these things, and somebody made the comment, so, Dr. So-and-so, you really are an optimistic individual. And he said, to do what I do, you got to be optimistic. And that's the way I feel, too. Perfect. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Chi. Next, we're going to have uh, Teresa Pond coming from Austria. Yeah. Hello. Thank you, Professor Chi. You already gave us plenty of really good advices and important advices. I was wondering if, if you have anything in mind from the beginning of your academic career about advices and especially which was the best and the worst one you've got back then. Uh, let's start with the best because that's easy. I think I told, and I'm not sure if this is going to be one long thing or it's going to be individual, individual snippets. Uh, I, I, I think one of my uh, 
of course, my mother telling me that you need to treat all the patients as if they're your mother or your relative. I know a lot of people have said that, but I do believe it's true. If you do that, you're going to avoid a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, but I think the, the words of Bill Hoskins of um, A, um, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. Uh, B, um, if you're going to try to do something, that's fine, but be safe and record what you're doing. And the other one that I didn't say earlier is that some of the best studies that we can conceive of are those who, if you have a question that a patient asks you, like, why do we do this? Or why do you do that? Um, why are you recommending that? And if you don't really have a good answer, why then that's a good point to start doing a research project of, okay, this is going to ask, this is going to answer a very simple patient question. And so a lot of the things that we do, you know, why we wrote a couple papers on, all right, every time we do a, a diaphragm peritonectomy, mobilize the liver, these patients are getting pleurofusions and getting thoracentesis and chest tubes uh, in the middle of the night. So why don't we see what we can do to improve that? And so we started putting in chest tubes, which is a little bit controversial, I know, even in our own institution, but it's solved that problem. And so um, I'm very, very happy and proud of that tiny little research that we've done on that. So um, uh, that's the, the, that's the, um, that's the positive good advice I've seen. The, 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 I, the negative advice, Hmm, maybe I am too optimistic. I can't think of any really good, any negative advice that someone told me other than, other than there were people who were very critical of our incorporation of extensive upper abdominal surgery way back when, uh, when, when, uh, when we started doing it. Somebody said, you know, you guys are being too aggressive. Our survivals are going to be, uh, are going to be very, very diminished. Uh, based on what you're doing. And um, I actually even had a, a post-operative death uh, early on around the early 2000s, uh, but uh, I didn't necessarily listen and stop the commitment to doing comprehensive surgery for ovarian cancer. And, and I think hopefully our survival outcomes will con continue to rise and I think are comparable to any of the best centers in the world. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Chi. Next, we'll have Vansa joining us from the country of Georgia. Uh, so first of all, uh, thank you, Dr. Chi, for your really interesting answers, for very important uh, key points you made and for inspiring us with your honest talk. So um, my question is, which uh, personal or professional achievement comes to your mind first that you feel particularly proud of and could you tell us more about it and uh, what it means to you um well personal really really quickly obviously i think that um i've provided uh for my family i think as best as i know my wife is happy um even though in the early years i didn't spend as much time as i should have with the kids and i think that uh my three children jessica uh, Stephanie and Andrew. Um, I wanted them to be not your typical uh, Asians um, who were very, very hardworking, studious, and quiet. Um, and that may have backfired a little bit because now they they talk and too much, and I can't shut them up. 
but nevertheless, I think they are um, highly achieving people. All uh, two going when two are going. What, well, the first, the oldest two are going to Columbia Business School, and my my son is applying to medical school. So I, I'm very proud of the three of them. Um, as far as professional achievements, uh, I think that the idea that again, I don't give chemotherapy, I don't do radiation therapy, so. I really, the focus of my academic career has been on surgery for gynecologic malignancies. And I do think the whole idea that when people say, no, you can't do that, it hasn't, I can't say that, oh, I was so um, inspired because people said no. And, you know, if you're, if I was an athlete, I would say, well, don't give up on your dreams. Don't, don't listen to other people. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm I'm just saying that from a personal standpoint, from a professional standpoint, the notion that people just didn't use their common sense and utilize the 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 people who want to collaborate with you and the ability to kind of like bring in whatever resources you have. I get it. I understand. And Memorial Stone Kettering, we may have some resources and some other colleagues who can help us more than other centers. But think about this question. When people criticize what we do because we're memorial and because we're um, uh, we have all the resources, if it's your mother and I say, well, we could get all the cancer out because we're memorial sun catering. We have the OR time, we have the blood, we have the ICU. We could, but because we're memorial and because we have all those resources and other centers don't, I'm not going to give you the best care I can. I'm going to give you something less than that so that I can be like the other centers that don't have these resources. Isn't that crazy? So the, my, my proud achievement is the fact that in the studies that we've done, we have been able to incorporate some of the best people, whether it's surgery or chemo or pathology or radiology, to get the best outcomes. I don't, in the research I've been doing, I don't strive to be mediocre. I strive to make a difference and say, look, we did it. I had all these complications doing it. Here's how you prevent them. Here's how you can do it. If you don't want to do it because you think, well, that's memorial, we don't care what they do. Okay. But if you want to try to do the best that you can, and you can ask any fellow that's trained here, we will operate until whatever time it takes to get the best surgical outcomes, period. And I understand it's not like that in other places. I understand there's a, a difficulty in getting cases on the OR and, 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 um, and with OR theater time, I understand all that, but that's not gonna stop me from doing the best possible job I can for Dr. Bernaldo's mother. It's not gonna stop me. Awesome. And uh, for the last question, um, we're going to have uh, Julia joining us uh, coming from Italy. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Dr. Chi, again, for being with us today. Well, considering your successful career, you have been part of, and as you said, in important changes in Gainon. What is the future of our specialty, in your opinion? And which promising topic would you recommend a young, a young fellow to focus on? Thank you so much. Well, I would say that wherever you are, you got to kind of know that what's called the political landscape of your institution. If you're in an institution where they don't want you 
operating in a certain way, I would try to gently persuade them, get other people involved uh, to do what you want, but ask them to help you. I teach, the, I tell the fellows all the time, don't go from here to another institution and say, all right, well, I'm going to start operating in the chest because that's what we did at Memorial. You'll get fired. So I would say just, you know, be, be acknowledge what's going on in the political landscape. But I do think that um, we need to stand firm uh, as people who are, who are involved in surgery and, uh, and still kind of have the, the, the turf battle and still keep the surgical part of G1 oncology. I don't think people need to necessarily publish only papers and only do research in surgery, but I think that we need to continue to train people how to do good surgery for gynecologic cancers. As far as the research component, I get it. I know there's more funding, there's more opportunities, there's more, the sky is the limit for um, immuno-oncology therapy, um, targeted therapy, all those things. And I definitely think that doing research in those areas is something that is very, very helpful as you try to build your career. So I'm not at all trying to say, don't do that, but I'm just trying to say, and when it comes to an individual patient and your career, don't forget about the surgery and con continue to try and understand the literature and contribute to the literature in, in non-surgical ways also. Awesome. So that concludes the podcast for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Chi, for taking time from your busy schedule to sit with us. It has truly been an absolute honor to learn from you both today and, and in my training. And, and now the, you know, the world's going to be lucky to, to hear your thoughts and, and mentorship. Thank you to all our listeners for joining and goodbye.